enclosures. There are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Wendell Berry. Rain was still falling hard a week later when I cycled past a garden with two life-size sculptures of giraffes towards a modern red brick Catholic church. On the church wall was a statue of a bored-looking St George stabbing down at the dragon with about as much enthusiasm as a community service litter picker. Old George up there took quite the journey to sainthood in rainy England from his beginnings as a soldier in the Roman army. He's the patron saint of not only England, but also Georgia, Ethiopia, Catalonia, Aragon, Valencia and Corinthians FC in Sao Paulo. I turned right at the church into a maze of terraced streets. In one house, I saw a dozen trophies shining in an upstairs window. A child's bedroom, I guessed, proud of their efforts and achievement. An enormous railway embankment towered above the houses and overshadowed the streets. It led on to a viaduct whose ten arches were visible from grid squares for miles around. I was understanding the lie of the land better now, getting a clearer idea of how all these places fitted together. Passing beneath the viaduct, I turned onto a footpath along the river. The stream was only small, but it was swift from weeks of rain and close to overflowing. Although the day was cold and wet, there was, I thought optimistically, a little more birdsong than last week. My bike clogged with mud as I slipped and slid along the riverbank. A cloud of winter gnats danced in the air like will-o'-the-wisps, making the most of their single week of life. The first shoots of early daffodils pushed through the wet earth, and wrens bustled around the base of hedges. With a population of 11 million pairs, they are our most common birds, discounting 145 million chickens, which sounds surprising because wrens lurk and skulk in dark crevices. Their Latin family name is Troglodytidae, Wrens are not particularly noticeable until you learn their song, but once you do, it's unmissable. I tuned into it once someone told me that they end each loud riff with a rat-a-tat-tat sound like machine gun fire. A quick wren digression. The Irish word for wren comes from Dreoilin, or trickster. They've had a reputation for cunning, so Aesop's fable goes, ever since all the birds first gathered to choose their king. After much argument, they agreed that whichever bird could fly the highest would become king. The tiny wren stowed away in the feathers of the mighty eagle, which soared far higher than any other bird. As it descended to claim the throne, the eagle heard a small but loud voice chirping upon its back. I am the king. I am the king. The eagle refused to accept the stowaway's victory, insisting that it had won fair and square. But the wren retorted that though the eagle might be strong, it did not have the wisdom to lead. And so the wren became the unlikely king of the birds. A row of terraced houses, built with the viaduct and railway station 160 years ago, had long, narrow gardens reaching out like tendrils to the riverbank, wide enough only for a patch of decking and a barbecue. The ploughed fields opposite were black and bare, sprinkled with white flint. In other fields, hop poles stood like washing lines. In the summer, they will hang with spindly vines for producing beer. I rode across a sodden recreation field, 
dotted with dog shit and empty except for a solitary wonky football goal in an island of mud, minus its net, and a lone swing missing its seat and chain and therefore its entire purpose. Recreation fared better elsewhere on the grid square with a bowls club, the car park sign had been donated in memory of Alan, and a football ground whose sheltered viewing area had been brightened up with a wall of colourful graffiti. Someone had left a bag of fizzy drinks and jammy dodger biscuits there, named after Roger the Dodger from the Beano comic. I was tempted to nick them, but instead had a play on the outdoor gym equipment installed by the pitch. Returning to my bike, I found a feisty robin perching on the handlebars and singing lustily. Its red breast burnished the grey day, though to my eyes it looked more orange than red. The word orange, to describe a colour, didn't exist in English back in the 15th century when it became popular to give creatures human names, hence Robin Redbreast. Only when the first sweet oranges arrived in Europe in the 16th century with their startling fruit did the term yellow-red seem inadequate for that brilliant shade and a new colour was born. I find it interesting that describing colours is not a simple matter of black and white. Chaucer described a daisy as being white and red. Russians and Greeks separate what we would call light blue or dark blue into two distinct colours. Irish and Turkish languages differentiate between different reds. Green is often considered a shade of blue in Japan and the Piraha language in Brazil has just two colours, light and dark. I waited for the little red slash orange-breasted bird to leave my bike, then schlepped onwards through the mud. The bubbling river had been the catalyst for a community settling here long ago. The stream powered small flour mills, generating enough customers to also keep a forge in business. A paper mill was built in the 19th century, whose brick chimney no longer billowed smoke, but still towered over the town. It must have looked so impressive when it went up. There was an astonishing energy in the country back then. Yet it also reminded me how quickly eras come and go in the grand scheme of things. Today's cutting-edge innovation is tomorrow's anachronism and next week's museum piece. The mill had now been converted into apartments for commuting millennials, with a strong whiff of weed drifting from a second-floor flat. This square promised a lake as well as the river, but high hedges, private property signs and a spiked fence foiled my attempts to get to the shore. I shook the railings in frustration. Most of the problems in my life, small though they are, are connected to not spending enough time in wild places. And I am one of the lucky ones. I'm writing a book about nature and I earn my living from playing around outside. Not everyone gets to be so engaged with the world around us. There is a glaring problem when 90% of adults want their children to learn about wildlife, but half cannot recognise a sparrow, and only 1% of families can identify our most common trees. Most of us feel nature is important, yet we don't spend enough time in it, and being distanced from nature affects people's health and happiness. The lake had been made by flooding an old gravel quarry, it was secured as fiercely as a prison, but looked lovely through the chain-link fencing. A few fishermen sat around the shore, private members hunched beneath green umbrellas and surrounded by paraphernalia to outwit the lake's carp, perch, chub, tench, roach, bream, eels and dace. 
I met one of the fishermen by the exit as he was leaving with his wheelbarrow of equipment, locking the tall gate behind him. I asked him if the occasional loud bangs I heard were intended to scare herons away. Cormorants, he answered. Horrible things. They've moved in from the sea and taken over. We had 80 of them on the lake once. They'll go for anything, even fish too big for them to eat. They need to be culled. All of which made my head spin a little. What is the best way to control wildlife? Do we heed the bird lovers or the fish lovers? To cull or not to cull? To evolve or to preserve? Does prior presence give priority? The only thing I was sure of was that when humans get involved, nature usually gets messed around. I moved on from cormorants to ask about the fences. I wish I could walk round the lake, but why is it all fenced off? I don't like it either, he sympathised, but we need to do it, sadly. Sometimes I love to just go for an evening walk around the lake. I don't even bring a rod, just enjoy it. It all used to be open, but it was chaos. Dog walkers and anglers don't really get on. Crap everywhere, dogs running around, noses in the bait boxes, jumping in the water, getting hooked in the mouth. Chaos. But it still worked, just about. It was all open until, well... Less than 20 years ago. Then what happened? I prompted. Well, I'm not racist, but... My ears pricked up. What does fishing have to do with race? But it was poaching that did it. When all the Polish people came here about 20 years ago. Nice people, don't get me wrong, but they eat carp. They even eat it for Christmas dinner. You see them all down in the town, catching fish under the road bridge, slipping them into their bags. Our lake was getting rinsed by poaching, so we had to put up all these fences. If you want the real problem, though, you've got to blame the Enclosures Acts, don't you? That's when all this began, hundreds of years ago. For centuries, English agriculture operated a system of common land. Some land was privately owned, but people still had access to it. The word commoner originates from someone who benefited from these commons. The idea of ownership equating to exclusion only came later. Although there were specific rights, everyone could use common land for grazing, foraging, gleaning, which means gathering leftover grain after the harvest, and sometimes fishing or hunting. Farming was based on large open fields where yeomen and tenant farmers cultivated strips of ground alongside each other. It was not an easy life and rural poverty was severe, but it was relatively fair and sustainable. Then, between 1604 and 1914, Parliament passed more than 5,000 acts covering open fields and common land, affecting 20% of the area of England. The new laws allowed landowners to enclose their land and prevent commoners using it. The acts were motivated by landowners looking to maximise rental income. They altered our country's relationship between the people and the land forever. Farm workers suffered from these rents and many were forced to leave the ancient commons to seek work in towns and cities. The other side of the argument was that consolidating holdings led to more economical farming systems. Landlords could introduce innovations which led to the agricultural revolution, increased productivity and boosted profits. Property rights had been a Roman idea, 
resisted by both Greeks and Celts who couldn't see how nature could be owned by humans. Centuries after the Romans left Britain, however, the Enclosure Acts tilted the balance of power, ownership and access further away from the common man than ever before. Today, half of England is owned by less than 1% of the population. So I now found myself peering over a fence at a little lake I'd like to paddle in, but which was somehow owned and therefore off-limits. I murmured an 18th century folk poem to myself, which protested against the enclosures that started all this. They hang the man and flog the woman who steals the goose from off the common, yet let the greater villain loose that steals the common from the goose.' 